thinks you're Santa Claus. <laughs> I am. You know what? I know. Know what? A secret. What secret? Santa Claus. I've known for a long time. He's not real. Says who? My mom. I am the parent. You are the friendly guy down the hall. They say that seeing is believing. <laughs> but the truth is, the world is held together by things you can't see. There really has to be something you want for Christmas. A house, a brother, and a dad. That's all I ever want. He loves you and he wants to kiss you. And he thinks he's the most beautiful woman in the world. If you're really Santa Claus, you can get it for me. Right. <laughs> it's an engagement ring. If, if you can't accept anything, hey! faith, then you're doomed for a life dominated by doubt. She's deaf. You don't have to talk to her. She just wanted to see you. You are a very beautiful young lady. <laughs> if I could make you believe, then there'd be some hope for me. If I can't, well, I'm finished. I want this man declared insane. This is about a man who has had something very wrong done to him. I want you to help him. Together, we're going to prove that there is a Santa Claus and that you're him. I'm ready, guys. Do you believe that you are Santa Claus? Yes, of course. I'd like the court to see Mr. Kringle make the reindeer fly. He only flies on Christmas Eve. <laughs> Coles believes in Santa Claus. Do you believe in Santa Claus? If this court finds that Mr. Kringle is not who he says he is, then I would ask the court to judge which is worse. A lie that draws a smile. I knew it. Or a truth that draws a tear. 20th Century Fox. Richard Attenborough, Elizabeth Perkins, Dylan McDermott, and Mrs. Doubtfire's Mara Wilson present you with the most precious gift of all. Something to believe in. Miracle on 34th Street. You guys seen that movie? Who's seen that movie? It's a fun movie, isn't it? It's funny because um, I remember seeing that movie in the theaters with Mary and... Um, now it's an old movie, and um, it, wasn't, it wasn't an old movie when we went to see it, um, but here we are. All right. Again, reinforce Gracie's point that I'm vintage. One of the things that I think we all love about Christmas is that it just kind of feels magical, doesn't it? Do you love, because honestly, December 22nd is my least favorite day of the year. Because it's the shortest day of the year. Like, I like sunshine, right? And, and, and I think that Christmas makes December 22nd not feel so dark. Because you're kind of looking forward and you're excited and, and it's, it's good. And so um, I was thinking about when I was a kid how um, there were a couple of times when I tried to spend the night under the Christmas tree. 
because I wanted to catch Santa Claus. Anybody ever do that? Try to spend the night under? Yeah. And um, I remember one, one Christmas, as a matter of fact, when, when I stayed the night under the Christmas tree, and when I woke up on Christmas morning, there were Christmas presents around me and on top of me. And I remember just waking up going, oh, wow. It was so cool, right? Now, there is that feeling of wonder and magic around Christmas, but then there's the miracle of Christmas. And while this movie is called Miracle on 34th Street, it's not really a miracle, right? Because a miracle is defined differently than what we think of when we think of Santa Claus and reindeer and all of those fun things. So what's the definition of a miracle? Definition of a miracle is that it is an effect or extraordinary event in the physical world that surpasses all known human or natural powers and is ascribed to the supernatural intervention of God. That's cool, right? How many of you have ever seen an actual miracle happen? Raise your hand. You've seen a verifiable miracle happen. Okay. There's a number of you here who have seen miracles happen. Um, as I was thinking about the miracle of Christmas, you can't narrow it down to a miracle that happened around Christmas. As a matter of fact, I was looking at all of the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled just surrounding his birth. Do you know that Jesus fulfilled more than 300 very specific prophecies when he was born? That's unreal. So just for perspective, um, years ago there was a, a doctor. His name is Dr. Peter Stoner. He was a mathematician and an astronomer. And he did the statistical probabilities of Jesus fulfilling the number of prophecies that he did. Okay? So the number is if one person were to fulfill eight of these specific prophecies. The number is one in one quintillion. That's a lot, right? So that's, that's this number. So it's, it's three, six, nine, 12, 15, 18 zeros after a one. That's a quintillion. That's for eight prophecies. Now, if you take that and you multiply eight by eight, 40, uh, is that, I'm sorry, my math's bad. 48, hang in there, hang with me. It's not 48. It's, okay, let's just take 48 because that's what I have written on the slide. All right, it would, this is, it's one in 10 to the 157th power. There's not even a number for that. There's not even a number for that. It's more than a Google, right? How many of you ever, when you were kids, you were arguing with somebody and you said, uh-huh, nuh-uh, uh-huh, nuh-uh, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh times 10, nuh-uh times 100, uh-huh times a million, and somebody always ended up with a Google, right? It's more than that. So it's, it's so big, so, and that's just 48, the odds are impossible for someone to fulfill 
300 plus prophecies specific. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. So that's where we are left with only Jesus. Jesus is the only one. And I was thinking, um, I had written down some prophecies that he fulfilled, but I'm going to try because I've got a lot of material that I want to move through. But one of the things that, that struck me was in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, it says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, are only a small village among all the people of Judah, yet a ruler of Israel whose ori- origins are in the distant past, will come from you on my behalf. Pastor Mike's going to preach an awesome message next Sunday about the prophecy surrounding Bethlehem and how significant Bethlehem is to the Christmas story and how significant it is to your life. But, but just know this. The Jewish teachers were not looking in Bethlehem. They had the opportunity to just go kind of down the street and investigate. But in the Christmas story, in the book of Matthew, we read about some wise men, right? Your, your version may say magi who come from the east. And how many of you know this song that we three kings of Orient are bearing gifts, we travel far. So first of all, we don't know if there were three kings or not, Okay. That's just in the song. And by the way, the, the song, just kind of the history of the song, it was written in 1857 by John Henry Hopkins Jr. I don't know if he's in a relation to these guys or not, but it's a great song, so it could be. Um, and in the song is Orient. Orient is a Latin word for east, okay? So it's Oriente is the Latin word for east, and so he's saying they came from east. It was actually written for a children's play. Okay, so the theology was not necessarily the most important part of the song. If you could imagine people in bathrobes walking around with a little thing on their head, that's, that's kind of the context in which it was written. But these men came from the East, and we know that. What, where did they come from? Well, the, the term magi is actually a Persian word. Um, where is modern-day Persia? Anybody know? Iran, right? <clears throat> So these guys came from the land of Iran to Bethlehem looking for Jesus. And why did they come? And why do you have Persian wise men? And, and by the way, they're, they're not magicians like you're thinking of magicians, okay? Not like you, you don't rent these guys out for birthday parties. They don't make balloon animals. You know, that's not, these guys were the most knowledgeable people of the day. That's what it referred to. They were the the wise men of old. And it's interesting because these guys are looking for Jesus because of one person. You know him. He's got a book in the Bible named after him. His name is Daniel. So why are there wise men from Persia looking for Jesus? Well, it's because in Daniel chapter 5, flip in your Bible to Daniel, right after Ezekiel. Daniel chapter 5. Listen to this, it says, Uh, Verse 11, there is a man in your kingdom who has within him the spirit of the holy gods. During Nebuchadnezzar's reign, this man was found to have insight, understanding, and wisdom like that of the gods. Your predecessor, the king, made him chief over all the magicians, magi, 
enchanters, astrologers, and fortune tellers of Babylon. Okay, so Daniel, at the time of Nebuchadnezzar, was the chief of all of the wise men of Babylon. That's pretty cool, right? Well, later he falls out of favor with the new the new government that has arisen. And so because he's fallen out of favor with that government, they don't want to put this guy in a position of power. So what happens? All of a sudden, this king, um, Belteshazzar, is having this big party and this disembodied hand appears and writes a message on the wall. And nobody can read the message. And so they're like, how do we find out what the message says? I don't know. And then somebody comes up with this idea, says, hey, there's this guy, Daniel. And he could probably tell you. And so he comes and does it. It's a pretty impressive story. Well, later on in Daniel chapter 6, verse 24 and following, it says, Then the king gave orders to arrest the men who had maliciously accused Daniel. He had them thrown into the lion's den along with their wives and children. That's hardcore. The lions leaped on them and tore them apart before they even hit the floor of the den. Then King Darius sent this message to the people of every race and nation and language throughout the world. Peace and prosperity to you. So what happens here in this, in this story is that all of the king's magi tried to get Daniel destroyed. But what ends up happening is Daniel is saved and rescued and all of the king's magi are thrown into the lion's den with their families, effectively severing their ability to have any influence on the future of Persia, right? And so who gets put in place to be the head over the schools and over the education of all the people who are going to grow up to be magi in the new Persian kingdom, Daniel. And so what's Daniel teaching these guys? Hey, there's a Messiah coming and he's going to be born in Bethlehem and you should look for him. And so these guys are astronomers too, astrologers and astronomers. And so they're always looking to the sky for information, right? It was a very big part of ancient culture and custom. And so, so these guys are looking. And then in, in Daniel chapter 9, verse uh, 24, it says, um, this gets a little confusing and I don't have time to go into the whole thing, but I just want to kind of read it real quickly and give a small explanation and then go. It says, a period of 70 sets of seven has been decreed for your people in your holy city to finish their rebellion, to put an end to their sin, to atone for their guilt, to bring an everlasting righteousness to confirm the prophetic vision and to anoint the most holy place. Okay, so Daniel is making a prediction here that... In 490 years, the Messiah would present himself in Jerusalem as the king. And there, again, there was a mathematician years ago that put together the total number of days, including leap year, and predicted from the time that Daniel made his prophecy to the time Jesus presents himself on Palm Sunday was exactly... 490 years to the day 490 years that's okay in terms of prophetic accuracy you know so so this is daniel 
teaching these magi. And now the, the, the magi are an enduring culture. And their job is to teach their kids and teach their kids and teach their kids and pass it on, pass it on, pass it on. So for 490 years, this thing has been passed on till all of a sudden, the anticipation starts to build, right? Now it's like, oh man, Daniel's talking about these 490 uh, years. And look, this is our lifetime. It's gonna happen. And so they started looking for signs. When's it gonna happen? And the Bible says that they, because they're astrologers, right? They're looking to the sky for signs. What's out of the ordinary? What's different? What can we use to help us know that this Jesus is gonna be born? Or this Messiah is gonna be born. And so they begin to look. And the Bible says that a star appeared in the east, right? And the magi, the wise men, they follow the star. Now there's a lot of debate as to what the star was. Some people say it's a comet, right? Halley's Comet appeared in around 11 BC, but that doesn't fit our time frame. There's also a thing called the Great Conjunction, where Jupiter and Saturn come together um, from our visual point of view, right? And, and those two major planets coming into alignment would create a very bright star. Um, this did happen in 7 BC, which is about a year before the window that we believe Jesus was born in. We believe that Jesus was born between 6 and 4 BC. Um, Jupiter is called the kingly planet, and Saturn is the planet of the Westlands. And, and when it appeared in 7 BC, the, the great conjunction actually took place in the constellation Pisces, which for the, for the, um, the Persians, Pisces was a, a sign of the end times. So it could have been that. Could have been that they were looking there. Uh, could have been a supernova. Um, the Chinese record a supernova that took place in 5 BC, so that would have taken place right in that window. We don't really know what it is. I tend to think, because of Matthew 2, I think it was a supernatural light. I don't know why we as believers in Jesus are always looking for natural explanations to supernatural events, right? But we tend to. Like I've, I've seen people that have done whole papers and commentaries on the natural ways in which the 10 plagues of Egypt took place. And I'm like... Why? Right? And, and then you hear people that say, well, the parting of the Red Sea, it was actually the Sea of Reeds, and it was only 18 inches deep. And you're like, oh, okay, well, what's the greater miracle, right? That, that, that the Israelites crossed the Red Sea or that God drowned Pharaoh's entire army in 18 inches of water. I don't, it's, it's a miracle. Either way, Right? So, so we're always, though, kind of trying to find. But if we read scripture, look at what we see. We see the Israelites walking through the desert following a cloud of fire, a pillar of fire, right? It's a supernatural light that's guiding them. We, we see Jesus appears to the apostle Paul in a supernatural blinding light. We read in 2 Chronicles 7 about the Shekinah glory of God appearing and there was a, a glowing when we read about the Mount of Transfiguration. We see that there was this supernatural light that was emitted. So why do we have to think that there was a natural occurrence or a natural phenomenon that the, the uh, Persian wise men 
followed? Why didn't God just show up and make his own star and say, follow me, right? We don't know. But what we do know is it was a miracle. And that's the awesome part about Christmas is it's miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle, prophetic fulfillment after prophetic fulfillment over and over and over again. The point that God is trying to make to you, the point that God is trying to make for me is believe in miracles because I'm the God of miracles. Who, like, seriously, 490 years before Jesus is born, you have Daniel give a prophecy that nails the date so accurately. And he trains these people because he knows that his own people aren't going to be looking for their Messiah. So he has to educate Persians to come look for the Messiah that the Jews are supposed to be looking for. But he knows that they're not gonna be looking for their own Messiah, so he has to bring somebody else from some other land to do it for them. Wow. And then there's this other minor miracle that we find in Matthew chapter one. Just a small one. Verse 18 says, this is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother, Mary, was engaged to Joseph, but before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, The only time in human history that a virgin gave birth. No, no matter what you've heard, it's the singular event in history. And it's interesting because the scripture talks about how the sins of the father are passed on to the third and the fourth generation, right? because it's the seed of man. So man has a seed, a sperm. The woman has an egg, ovum. We know these things. But, but what happens in spiritual history and spiritually significant is that when Adam sinned, he passed his sin on generationally. That's why, you know, the scripture says in Romans that um, through one man's sin entered into the world and death by sin. And so death is passed upon all because all have sinned, right? We sinned because of our partnership through the seed of man, right? And so there's this, there's this kind of big deal that God says, hey, I need God, man, to do the job, to which we all Wait a second. I see how God could do the job. I see how a perfect man needs to be made as a sacrifice. And I see, right? We see all of these things. But God said, no, no, no. I have to be fully God and fully man in order to make it happen. One of the things that occurred to me this week as I was studying about this is one of the miracles that we overlook about Christmas is not just that God could do what he did, but that God would do what he did. I was thinking about it as I was driving down the street this week and I saw a guy that was um, sitting on a park bench and he was homeless and he's a guy that I know and I, I enjoy conversation with him. I love him. Um, and, and it just occurred to me, man, if, if I were so inclined, I could give him my home and take his place. 
right? I could, it's in my capacity to do so. Every one of us in this room that has a home, it's within your capacity to take your home and give it to someone who doesn't have a home and take their place, right? It's within our capacity. However, it's something that we don't do, right? But I was thinking about what Jesus did. That's exactly what he did. He left his home so that we could have it. Wow. The fact that he would do that is a miracle. And he chose to come and live in the womb of a woman, be born of natural means as a product of the Holy Spirit, become fully God, fully man. As we think about this story and as we process through it, it's, it's amazing. But it's the fulfillment of a prophecy, isn't it? Isaiah chapter 7, kind of the backstory of this prophecy. And I'm going to work through this real fast. But it's too good not to go through because this is the time of year when we look at these things. So Isaiah chapter 7. This is the backstory for this famous passage of scripture that uh, a virgin will conceive and give birth to a baby and he'll be called Emmanuel, God with us, right? And so kind of what's happening is that the, the Syrian army, not the Assyrian army, but the Syrian army is building up their forces so they can attack Israel and take them captive, the plan generally at this point in history was when you came in for the Syrians, when they came in, they didn't just want to come and overthrow the seat of government. They came in and destroyed everybody, killed everybody. And so, so this is a very significant moment. And in Isaiah chapter 7, uh, if we read verse 10, it says, Later the Lord sent this message to King Ahaz, who was the king of Judah. Now at this time, remember, there's Israel, which is made up of 10 tribes, and then there's Judah that is just a single tribe, right? And so, so Israel is, is kind of in this place where they're thinking about partnering up with the Assyrians and the Syrians to kind of take over, and, and Judah is kind of on their own trying to figure things out. And so Ahaz is in this difficult predicament, and it says, Isaiah asked him, ask the Lord your God for a sign of confirmation, Ahaz, make it as difficult as you want, as high as heaven, or as deep as the place of the dead. But the king refused. No, he said, I will not test the Lord like that. That sounds very spiritual, doesn't it? That sounds very, very spiritual. The, the reality is that Ahaz wasn't worried about testing God. He just didn't want to trust God. That's why he didn't ask for a sign. He didn't ask for a sign for noble reasons because he didn't want to test him. He didn't ask for a sign because he already had a plan and he didn't want to trust God for his plan, right? And if we're real honest, some of us do the same thing, don't we? Don't we do that sometimes? We, we got a plan and we just want God to sign off on it. We want God to come alongside our plan. And so as we read on, it says, then Isaiah said, listen well, you royal family of David. He's fixing to put a whoop on him, isn't he? It says, isn't it enough 
to exhaust human patience. In other words, you've worn me out, right? Must you exhaust the patience of my God as well? All right, then the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. By the time the child is old enough to choose what is right and reject what is wrong, he will be eating yogurt and honey. For before the child is that old, the lands of the two kings you fear so much will both be deserted. To which we all say, how's that a sign? Right, Ahaz is looking for a sign that like, hey, this is all going to work out fine. And Isaiah comes out with, don't worry, Jesus is going to be born one day. A long time from now. Okay. So let me just back up the truck here for a second, Isaiah. I'm not sure that I'm clear. And I've, I've read different commentators say different things. I've, I've heard some commentators say that there was another woman that was looked on as a virgin and she conceived and all of, the, it's all of these crazy ideas. And I'm like, no, no, no. It's so simple because it's in the text. It says in verse 16, for before the child is that old, the lands of the two kings you fear so much will both be deserted. In other words, the, the superpowers that are threatening to overthrow you now are going to be gone and destroyed. So there's a baby coming, the Messiah, born of a virgin. And by the time he's old enough to have some yo play, these armies are going to be gone and forgotten. Before he's old enough to have some biscuits with a little honey and butter, they're going to be gone. But Jesus is going to come, but he's going to come through a virgin. Well, that's impressive, right? So why is this so significant? Remember, Jesus is called the lion of, what is the kingdom that is being threatened to be destroyed? Judah. So what Isaiah is saying, the Messiah has to come through Judah, so stop worrying because Judah is not going to be destroyed. Because if Judah's destroyed, the Messiah can't come through this. So stop worrying because the perfect Messiah is going to be conceived perfectly without sin, live sinless, die perfectly, and resurrect in power to reign on the throne of the kingdom of Judah forever and ever and ever. Pretty cool. You know, if you're into cool things. And here's the thing for us, guys. We believe in the virgin birth. Because there is a battle in our culture against believing in the virgin birth. Everywhere you go, I was, we were at a Christmas tree farm on Friday on our day off. The guy that is selling me the Christmas tree says, happy holidays. And I was like, I, I, this is what I said to him. I said, bro, I'm buying a Christmas tree. You're safe. You can say it with me. Go ahead. Merry Christmas. 
And he just smiled, real big smile. He goes, Merry Christmas. So, but it's like, you know, it's everybody's looking. I gotcha, you know. Merry Christmas. Oh, yeah, you're one of those. Yeah, I'm one of those. Yeah. I am one of those. Yes, I believe in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, the Messiah of God. Yes, I believe. And it's so important because it's in his humanity that he identifies with you and me. Hebrews talks, Hebrews is so confusing sometimes, but one of the things it shares in Hebrews is that he he could identify with us. He's not a high priest that doesn't identify with human suffering and struggle. You can never stand before Jesus and say, but you don't understand, Jesus. I was struggling. I was hungry. I was tired. I was having an off day. Because Jesus can say, oh, yeah, I know. I know. No, I know. Because he was fully human but he was fully God. And that's what makes it possible for him to be the sacrifice for our sins. Because without him being God, he doesn't have power. I heard people say when I was in Bible college, you know, if it were possible for a human to live sinless, then somebody else could technically be their own salvation. I was like, is nobody going to slap them in the head for, who are you, where are you from? You're at the wrong school, okay? Because that's not, no, right? So it is impossible for anyone to atone for sin except for God, period. He's the only one that has the power to. He's the only one whose blood is sufficient. And so it's critical. We believe that Jesus came in the flesh because if he wasn't a man then he didn't die and if he didn't die he didn't pay for your sins and if he didn't pay for your sins you can't be redeemed so based on that why do you think there's such a pushback to the idea of the virgin birth because the enemy doesn't want you to be redeemed that's it and only God can conquer death and give us life through death And so we have Emmanuel, God with us, living among us, still with us. And and here's the thing, uh, I'll, I'll wrap up because we're out of time, but one of the things that I was thinking about the Christmas miracles is they didn't stop at Christmas. They were the hallmark of who Jesus was. Like everywhere he went. He did miracles. In Mark chapter 5, there's kind of this setup before Jesus sends out his 12 disciples where he does all of these seemingly impossible miracles. He's got the, the demon-possessed guy and the Gerizines that's among the tombs and everybody's given up on him. He's scary. He's breaking chains and cutting himself and he's out of his mind and, and Jesus goes over there, shows up. This guy runs for the boat when they show up and all the disciples are like, row, 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 your boat. And, you know, they're trying to get away and Jesus is like, oh, hey, it's good to see you. Walks right up to him delivers him the man immediately gets his right mind and 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 testifies about Jesus and then and then there's the woman that has lived her whole life with this um bleeding 
feminine bleeding that can't get under control, hemorrhaging her entire life. She's unclean, unable to be in the midst of the rest of the culture, but she scoots her way into the middle of the crowd and she touches the hem of Jesus' robe and she's healed. A little bit later, there's, there's, a, there's a little girl. It's dead. Jesus raises her from the dead. And he tells his disciples, all right, go on, guys. You've seen enough. Now do it. And that became the hallmark of the disciples and of the early church. Peter, when he's walking down the street, his shadow would touch people and they would get healed. People were literally trying to move their sick loved ones along the street so that when Peter walked down the street, they could be healed by his shadow. It's pretty cool. This week, um, one of my heroes of the faith, Reinhard Bonnke, died at age 79. This guy literally prayed for people and saw them raised from the dead. This is our era. Talked to a real estate agent earlier this week that had been to India. And she said, I watched a pastor pray for somebody while I was in India and they were raised from the dead. God does miracles. Miracles are the mark of a believer. And and I think that sometimes we just let life go and we don't trust God for miracles. But guys, we need miracles in our lives. We need the miracle of salvation. We need the miracle of forgiveness, not just Christ forgiving us, but us forgiving those that have hurt us around us so that we can be free from the bondage of hatred and anger and resentment and jealousy. We need miracles in our lives that will bring us freedom. Again, I love when Abby prays because when she prays, she believes God's going to heal people. I... I'm not quite as strong in my faith as Abigail is. But I really do believe that when we pray for people, God will heal them. And we've seen it happen. We've seen it happen on multiple occasions. And we believe that God is still at work, still doing it. And so we don't just need a Christmas miracle. We need a Jesus miracle that's ever in us ever before us. How many of you this morning, you say, God, I need a miracle in my life. Raise your hand. Yeah. Come on, there are more of you that need a miracle. You just feel weird raising your hand. It's okay. Raise your hand if you need God to do a miracle. I want to pray. Hmm. If you're here today, as a matter of fact, and and you, you haven't even really trusted God, to be the miracle in your life, to transform your life. You haven't completely submitted your heart to him. I want you to raise your hand so I can pray for you because I believe that God wants to do a miracle in you. Amen. Anybody else? Come on. Yeah. Amen. Father God, today, Lord, we have heard through your word how you performed miracle after miracle after miracle, how you you fulfilled prophecies that blow our mind, God, statistical impossibility for one person to have fulfilled 
all 300 plus prophecies, but you did it. Every single one. Flawlessly. Lord, you're a miracle working God. And you continue to do miracles. Today, Lord, I pray for each person that needs you to do a miracle in their life, Lord. They need their life to be redeemed from the curse. They're tired of living in bondage to sin. They're tired of allowing the enemy to control them. Today, Lord, I speak over them that you would break the chains of the enemy. Lord, I speak over every demonic stronghold that exalts itself above the name of Christ. Lord, today we acknowledge how big you are and how great your name is and that you are able to perform miracles, signs, and wonders. And so, God, today we ask for a release for the captives in Jesus' name. And then, Lord, I ask for every other need, Lord, physical healing, emotional, mental healing. Lord, I know that there's someone here that is struggling so much in so much emotional, mental distress that they feel like they're about to explode. God, I pray that you would just give the peace of God that passes understanding to guard their heart and their mind in Christ Jesus right now. In Jesus' name, Lord, we just speak with authority because you are able, God. So we leave all of these things at the foot of the cross in the hands of Jesus, because we know that you are a miracle-working God. And so today we trust you in every way. In Jesus' name we pray. And the whole church said, amen. amen. God bless you guys. Thanks for being here.